so cool. We'd love to hear from anyone else who uh, was curious. There were a lot of people who were asking what the tumult was, and so uh, I tried my best to explain to you guys. But uh, we have some posts up, and if you listen to a couple of other shows, you should sort of start to grow up what we're talking about here. You'll get, I mean, Andy is the best at it we've seen, but uh, you can see about it on the site. There's a description on the About page. It's the act of engaging people, and you can see some of the stuff we're talking about. It's, it's, it's helping a social thing flow, helping a conversation flow. When things work in a, in a more networked digital environment, it's because someone, a person, is humanly tumbling it. It's not happening algorithmically, and it's not being managed top-down. So it's someone who's like, if you go to a good party, why is the party good? Someone's helping make that party. They've thought through how who to have there, who to connect with, and they're going around making sure everyone's connecting, and they may be entertaining themselves as well. It's a mix of, of all of those things. Does that make Hopefully it makes sense. I'm asking that as though the chat room is going to auditorily talk back to me. I know. I do that all the time. I just expect everyone to be able to say yes back. When the technology changes, we will hear and put you. I I spent um, a bunch of time in Seattle trying to convince developers. I'm going to try to keep doing it to develop a way for this to happen. And one of the, you know, the guy, the CTO of Cheeseburger gave me some interesting ideas. He's like, you got to talk to the video oh, game good. developers because imagine if you had a helmet or you could see stitched okay. together video images yeah. of people in front of you so you could see the room, everybody in the room. Like you cannot cool. connect already where you don't have a, you know, a Wii controller where we already have some video game technology like that. Is that sort of like those robots that they have walking around? <laughs> it, it's kind of like the way when you're playing a single person <laughs> game you can see the person next to you who's not physically yeah. Next to you yeah yeah so melissa said in the chat room she's in the chat room she goes yeah i like this pummeling thing it's kind of like second life without avatars <laughs> <laughs> i love that uh, second life in bits and chunks melissa i love that that's funny okay so you're hilarious <laughs> tony comstock you're like omnipresent you're like rob blatt i see you all over the web now now that i first yeah, like, me he too. just first of like oh tony likes our show and i'm like aunt tony is super polyamorous and he likes everything <laughs> and you contribute totally a lot <laughs> i know i see our our our, our chat room buddies everywhere now yeah uh, tony what do you mean by no more x of y or in the chat room here. Does anyone have any more questions for Mr. Carvin? Are you back, Andy? Are you back? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, you got yours. Use your time with him. Let him have it. Use it, we'll use it now because the guy's got to go to sleep or go get back on the net. And I know I think there are a couple more questions I didn't get to ask you. What were they? Um, do you think you hear differently because you're more used to radio and Twitter than if you use other mediums? Uh, well, those are two very different questions because I wouldn't say that I'm used to radio because I'm pretty much an amateur compared to everyone else at NPR. You know, I had zero radio experience before coming to NPR, and it was only maybe after a couple of years at NPR that they even allowed me anywhere near a studio. So I, 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 I don't consider myself a radio guy per se, even though I'm on air occasionally. Um, you know, I probably hear and think differently, not because I'm on Twitter, but just because I think it's the other way around. I'm on Twitter because I, the way I think is, you know, it, it matches the way Twitter and these other communities work. I, I don't, I feel less that it's changed me and said that I've, I've found a space where I can just be me. Oh, yeah. and Tony doesn't like my, I'm giving everybody a, okay. 
I, I appreciate the way I'm calling you the Bono of Tumbling. I just like the contrast of something ridiculous with, uh, to me, it's tongue in cheek, but I get what you mean. It's her, it's her comedic uh, self. Because Andy is the Andy of Andy. I get that. That is true. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I'm being, I'm not being very serious when I do that. Just FYI, if you see Marshall, Marshall Kirkpatrick, and you know that I call him the Lady Gaga of tech, that might come across. <laughs> it's ridiculous, is what I say intended. <laughs> Yeah, nor am I Bob Geldof or any other Irish musician. No, these are like real people. That's why they're so awesome that they matter the more to me. There's is there such a thing as too positive? Okay, so um, and Deb, did you have more questions you didn't get to? That's it. We silenced everyone in the chat. I'll give them a second to catch up. I know that Alex wanted to know about getting NPR in Canada. Um, I live in Canada now, Alex. So I listen to NPR both. On the web, and the iPhone app's pretty good. Did you work on iPhone yeah. Apple, Andy? Not particularly. Yeah. Yeah, well, the one, the one thing I've, NPR has done right is create podcast feeds for pretty much everything and ways for developers to find them. So we're seeing more of that showing up in a bunch of different apps. Yeah, you how, how many digital uh, folks are there at NPR, and how is it set up among the, the web webisins? I don't know digital? the exact what number. What do you mean by digital? Well, let me answer the question, and I'll explain what it is. I mean, you know, like many other news organizations, there's often been a divide between the traditional newsroom and then the people that get brought on to manage the website and other digital platforms. Ah. And it, it's somewhat similar to NPR. We do have a digital division, and we do have a news division, but they overlap in many ways. So we have a lot of reporters, producers, editors that focus on digital platforms, but they're still part of the newsroom. Um, and then, of course, you have all of our product managers, UX people, designers, coders, blah, 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 blah. If you add all of them up, it's probably close to, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 people. I don't know the exact number. And, and again, it's hard to count sometimes because there's, there's a certain amount of overlap with the newsroom for many people, so it's not mutually exclusive. Like, for example, right now, I mean, I don't report to the newsroom. I'm doing this. I mean, technically, like if you had looked at me on an org chart, I'm part of the business development team at NPR. Just try to get your head around that. <laughs> well, that's sort of my that was sort of my question early at the beginning of the show is that you weren't considered technically a journalist at NPR. And yes, you know, the lat the, and, and, and yet that is sort of what you do. Right. You know, and and yet. I and I also run NPR's social media desk, which is a an editorial unit in the newsroom. But yet, I'm not in the newsroom. It's it's, uh, but it's 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 and it's not that we're doing anything totally strange. It's just the type of work I'm doing didn't really exist until fairly recently, and so there right. isn't an, a standard place on an org chart to put me. So I my general position is to ignore all org charts anyway. And as long as I have. Yes. Uh, bosses above me that appreciate my work and give me the latitude to experiment. I don't care where I'm located. I think that's the definition of a Tumblr as well, is that ignoring all charts and talking to people is, is very much part of what you do. Because you're looking for the flow. Like, like you, what you kept saying, Andy, which is exactly what I'm, I'm – I just finished doing these workshops. I'm like, yes. Um, you were talking about um, how, when we were asking you, who do you follow? How do you figure out? You just kept saying, I'm coming back to the problem. And in each situation, here's the thing I need to figure out, which sounds so obvious, but that is not how most presentations are organized, organizations are organized. We're in this system that's kind of, everything's been systematized, set up a certain way, and you're supposed to run everything up a particular hierarchy to get permission to then go. And then by that time, you can't even remember what the freaking problem was. 
Right. So that's why t- we, we kind of lagged on to tunneling is uh, attached to this people who already were just problem focused and trying to connect the things that needed to happen to make this thing come together. You're focused on the, the connection. Right. Exactly. I, yeah. I couldn't have said it better. Did you do um, community organizing before you were online, like on the streets anywhere? Nope. Not really. Um, but I, you know, I can't think of anything in particular. And when I was, when I was in college, um, when I wasn't goofing off, I, ran the campus music magazine, um, tried working at the local, the campus volunteer organization, but wasn't particularly good at it. Um, you know, I've, you know, I, I think I've, I found, found my voice and my interest in solving problems once I really had a chance to go online, uh, just because I felt like I had more control over the, the problem I wanted to tackle, whatever it happened to be at any given time, and felt like I could I was also in a better position, frankly, to ignore bureaucracy if it were online. Yeah, I I think you know I my supposition is, and you know I I was an offline community event organizer, you know, both locally and you know, big events and the Grammys, and 9-11 was the event that sort of got me into blogging and being online. And if you speak to a lot of people who are sort of digital tumblers who do it both online via Twitter and offline, there's usually that thread of being a, uh, a sort of connected human asking question person in there, and they're the most successful people in, in, in our new web world, so to speak. But they get, you know, you get it's about that piece, right? You know, because you've done it, like you said earlier, I'm not doing anything differently than I've always done. The tools might have changed, right? Right. Uh, yeah, I, I saw so, someone in the chat room asked if I have any plans for doing this during the presidential election. Well, I don't have specific plans yet, but ironically, I, I got a lot, a lot of the chops that I have now were practiced during the 2008 election because mm-hmm. we used Twitter to fact check uh, uh, presidential debates. We'd ask people to use the hashtag fact check and, um, and find primary sources online that would refute what the candidates were saying or, or back them up if it happened to be true. And then on election day we worked with uh, personal democracy forum and techpresident.com to um, create a crowdsourcing project for election monitoring so people could use twitter and text messaging and voicemail and um, we had an iphone app and an android app where people could submit information on voting problems and geotag it and then we had another group of volunteers who would go through this huge collection of information and triage it so we could hand the most interesting nuggets to npr's election unit for investigating yeah, that was fun stuff. So here's an interesting tidbit that I'll tell you about. So we all know the PDF organization. We've had Mika on the show. We know Andrew Shea really well. I helped them produce the first PDF, and we put a chat room up online, up on the stage. This is pre-Twitter, right? So it was the IRC up on stage using Fastcast live during the conference, and the politicians sort of didn't know what hit them, right? That's awesome. It was like making the back, back, back channel transparent it was pretty wild i mean it, it, people still aren't used to it right so pdf does awesome stuff i think that's great that you worked with them on that yeah I've, cool. I've been to i think every conference except one over the last five or six years and and i'll, yeah. I'll be speaking at, speaking at the next one in june too yeah well we'll be we'll hopefully all be there if we can all be there cool we can figure that yeah. yeah, I just get that book for me. Yep. You know, you talked a little bit. You talked a little bit. I didn't uh, get a chance to ask this, you know, uh, on the recorded show, but 
how do you fact check some of your stuff when it's happening a so quickly and you might not be on the ground there? Um, yeah, it's tough. It is tough, which is why I rarely use the word confirmed except as a question ah. uh, because when stuff is coming in real time, you honestly don't know all the time. And, and I always try to remind my followers that when I post a video or a photo or anything like that, that they should understand that it's it's highly unlikely that the photo or video has been completely fabricated. In fact, it's really rare that that ever happens. But what happens all the time is we don't necessarily know the context, where it was shot, why it was shot, you know, when it was shot. And so... So those are things that can sometimes be answered, and so I rem- it, it really hit me early on in in, in um, uh, uh, Libya because there weren't any Western reporters there, but yet we were suddenly seeing this stream of videos supposedly from there. And since you know, I have no idea what Benghazi looks like. I've never been there. I've I've never been to Libya. So I'd start asking people. So have you been to Libya? Do you know any Libyans? What does this seem like to you? And people would start replying back to me and saying, "Oh, that's definitely an Eastern Libyan accent. I speak Egyptian and Arabic, and I know the difference." And then other oh. like Tunisians would pop in and say, "Yeah, that's that sounds like a Benghazi accent, and I recognize the corniche along the water there." And so, uh, you know, I, I crowdsource translating that way because I, I, I barely speak any Arabic. I'm just starting to learn it, and it's one of the toughest languages out there, so I don't expect to make a huge amount of progress. Uh, so anything that can't be solved through a, a quick Google translation, I ask people to tackle it, and I usually get a, a, um, a, a like an executive summary translation within five minutes from a couple of people. And depending on the newsworthiness, I'll sometimes have a team of like half a dozen or a dozen people doing a verbatim translation and then subtitling it using universal subtitles. Yeah, I've seen Andrew Sullivan do the translation thing, but not as fast, not as in real time. But it makes sense given the medium difference right. yeah, and who's exactly connecting to you and your, how you're out there. I mean, he, he does a little more sit-back analysis. You're like... Here's the action. Well, you know, you're in right. it. Like global voices try to do some of the translation of local stuff. I'm not, I don't think they do it in real time. They they do it for their blogs certainly because they're really good at, at analyzing the blogosphere in different countries. Um, the folks at Alive dot in have been doing a lot of real time translation and they've they've been very helpful to me uh, because they also have people on the ground in Libya that they're working with. Oh, that's cool. We should check that out and put it up on a, as a link. Yeah, yeah, you sh- you definitely should try to get Brian Conley on the show at some point because the work he does is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, we should check that out. We'll add, we'll definitely add that in. That's awesome. Yeah, he's Baghdad Brian on Twitter. Okay, awesome. Thank you for that. There you go, Mister Tumor, connecting already. Yeah, anyone you think would to- be great to to learn from or to talk to, you know, let us know. We'd love to have yeah. other folks on. Is anybody else in the chat room still want to ask Andy stuff? Andy, do you, while we're waiting for that, do you have any, you know, one of the things we hope to get out of us talking about this is just sort of um, raising up the level of how this stuff works and when it works, how it works. But being as deep as you are, do you have a, and you might not have the answer tonight, do you have a wish list of tools that you wish existed? Because we think that everyone sort of spends, yeah, yeah, we, we, Tumbling tools, actually, tools for tumblers, you know? I'm actually working on a wish list uh, because um, I, one of the coders at NPR has been freed up for a few hours to try to do some 
quick and dirty work um, uh-huh. on a couple of things, uh-huh. and we're hoping to have some more assistance, maybe a hackathon, a few projects. Uh, so we're I'm I'm trying to I'm just beginning to map out the requirements for a few projects. So for example. I need a tool that helps me with uh, at reply management and you know mentions management because on a busy day I'll get 2,000 at replies from people. Uh, in some cases, it's just people see seeing me while they're having arguments with each other, and uh, right. it's kind of like imagine if you're sitting at your desk trying to get work done, and all of a sudden strangers walk into the building and start debating in front of you. Whereas, and then while they're having their argument, two or three people are standing in line holding up documentary evidence of some government torturing its population. Um, I want to hear from them before I hear from the people who are arguing, and so mm-hmm. we're we're coming up with some potential algorithms to help me find uh, see which at replies are most important for me at any given time that's good i mean there are a lot of stuff that we want developers to focus on giving tools to the folks at, at the center of these things whether it's you or others who are you know trying to manage it, unfortunately most people create tools for the one to many you know or for individuals right. with consumer stuff not realizing that the real way stuff kind of flows across the net is more with folks like you and other tumblers. Yeah. Let me just jump in here. The other tool I'm hoping we're going to be able to build is some sort of um, uh, trust mapping visualization tool. So I would put in, for example, put in the name of a person on Twitter that I find interesting, and it would immediately show me in some visualizational list the people that they retweet the most, the people that they've had the most conversations with, that have known the most longest, the people that they're in the closest proximity to, to just give a quick map of who they seem to be interacting with. I'd love to do that as an open source project, but I'm also very scared of it because that same tool could get my sources killed. And frankly, mm, that's you can't, but you know, that's true of any tool, isn't it? You can't really control how someone Yeah, you can't. And part of the reason why I think I'm still going to go ahead with this is I'm sure certain regimes have already created this tool anyway. And so yes. they don't need my help. So, uh, you know what? So, yeah. yeah. A lot of the people doing social network analysis are doing it with, with security. People, that's that's very true. I'm talking to, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It'll give them the, unfortunately, or they're doing it for the influence model in businesses. You know, in the bad sense yeah. of what Twitter influences. I think if we're hoping to do a tunnel conference in the fall, and one of the things that we definitely want to have out of it is a hackathon session where we get developers to sort of. And it would be nice to have a bit of a wish list before we go into it, so we can see what feels like a really exactly. important thing I, right. that we can I, all use. I'm hoping I'll have a wish list within the next month or so because uh, where uh, some of us are talking about doing something as soon as early summer. Um, so we'll see. We should keep you guys when we do. So just so everyone's listening, we're wanted to put up a wiki pretty soon so we can have this sort of tumbling best of or tip stuff that's, that's on ongoing that you guys can all contribute to. And it would be nice to have an ongoing wish list of this kind of stuff, I think. Would you be willing to share your wish list, Andy? Yeah, at some point I'll go public with it. They're just yeah. some of the security issues that we're grappling with and deciding what, sure, sure. which which projects we make public and which ones we don't. So, Understood completely because, yeah. to me, the tools are the thing and the, where the visualization meets the social networking. I mean, that's where Sir Ben Cervani is working on some of that stuff with, right. like, Elad Lotan at Social Flow. It's like the people who sort of get this should be the ones who are building it. It shouldn't be about, it shouldn't be about like, phony clout scores and... The thing is that I think 
I don't know how this works with um, the kind of regimes you're talking about, Andy, but in terms of business, the reason I don't worry so much is because when you what you talked about, Andy, was I want to know someone's trust map, right? Trust yep. is really important and really relevant. Business doesn't get that, and I don't know how long it's going to take business and celebrity culture to get that because it's antithetical to the way right now industrial era business is designed and certainly celebrity era media is designed. They, they don't care about real trust. They care about exposure, but they've mis sort of misinterpreted exposure as influence. Right, exactly, because you know there are a variety of tools out there I can go to, and it'll list all of my followers based on how many followers they have, and you know that's fine and interesting, but you know I, not I think that helpful, much, not right, really. but not particularly helpful. Whereas, <laughs> not no, meaningful. I, it, it doesn't give you a sense of intimacy, and that's I. I, I it's really, all about intimacy, and you don't get intimacy without vulnerability, which is why I don't think this is totally co-optable by old style business because you have to in order to build real intimacy with someone you have to do the same thing with them now i'm not saying you live in an uh you know in a nation where it's run by a dictator they can't come and get a list of people to go visit but that's a different goal if your goal is i have a relationship with you on the web that you truly trust much harder to completely fake the way old school businesses work one other thing I wanted to mention is I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to convince the folks at Twitter at some point or another to basically give me a copy of my own personal fire hose. So, because, you know, just the way the API works, it only goes back so far and then there's a big gap. And since I said, uh, there have been days where I tweeted more than a thousand times in one day that you can only go back so far in my timeline. And so, if I'm able to get to get from them, you know, like my 30,000 most, most recent tweets, to be able to make that available, basically, so people can do all I think that would be really interesting. Uh, Andy, I think you're kind of siloning there, um, um, old school Un- siloning. Unplug um, and pull back in. Yeah, if you're, if you're using a USB mic, I think it, it, uh, it might need a little refresh there. Okay, okay. Hang on a second. Is this any, is this any better? No, it's still, fl- still flanging. Just unplug the USB and replug it. Basically, okay. there's okay. there's skew between the USB and the capture thing, and that resets it. Okay. Is this any better? Oh yeah, that fixed it. That's it. Yep. Here's a great question. In the chat room that we said Beautiful. we would style on you. And mm. you picked number six. Here's you a great question. The blonde chick. I know. That's why I picked her. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I just I wanted know. to make sure. Don't worry. I know my salons. Yeah. <laughs> I just figured that would be the the most ironic, or the most ridiculous, or the most ridiculous, I suppose. Oh, I thought, I thought that was a prisoner reference. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it was number six. Yeah, I'm not that clever. Can I, okay, here's a question from I like from Myers. He wanted to know, the Internet has had a really bad, bright, shiny object problem. From the olden days with Gopher to Twitter, what is salient, cats and kid photos or top ten list, is often the enemy of valid. What gets too much attention in your work and field and what's getting missed? Ooh, that's a really good question. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh. The chat room is brilliant. They're brilliant. I mean, he's, that's why we can't wait to actually hear him in the show. Yeah, well, you know, I'd say everything we've been talking about for the last 75 minutes pretty captures what my interests are and what my concerns are. You know, I think there are a lot of amazing uh, reporters out there that would do what I would do, what I'm doing if they simply were allowed to. Um, You know, in some ways, these aren't technical problems. These are these are 
personnel questions. Like, you know, ultimately, I don't think we need to build that many tools. I, what I, I think our biggest challenge would be, can I convince the executive producers or the senior editors of shows and desks to free up some people's time by 20%, 40%. You know, what would happen if I gave a critical mass of people at NPR 20% time to really focus on building their social media, uh, 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 their sourcing and uh, their credibility, and then ideally allow them to keep that time on an ongoing basis so it becomes a part of their regular journalism. Uh, that's a much harder nut to crack than simply asking someone to build some cool tools. So um, I think it's it's a it's a human resource issue and it's a culture issue that that NPR is we're certainly exploring it but we don't have the answer to it yet because you know we've got our own bureaucracies just like any other and yeah. we can't turn on a dime like but like most yeah part of are. part of what's hard about transitioning it and I think one of the reasons you were able to do this not only all the things that you know how to do is I mean I I, I talked at YLE which is like the NPR of Finland not mm-hmm. long ago. And the way they're organized, I'm going to bet this happens in a lot of organizations. They have already a pretty structured job over there. They have a union as well. They already have a, a lot of their time taken up by go do this reporting, these kinds of shows. Then they're told to blog as an extra thing. And then social media is on top of that. So because we, you and I have lived in a way where we've socially had social media and online relationships for so long. Um, first of all, we're used to just being online a lot more and using it conversationally. They're not. So one, they have to learn that skill set too, that you're right. They have to have the time just to meet people. Right. And, and if they're already doing this other thing all day long anyway, and they're doing that in a way that isn't conversational online, it's hard to have the time and the mental space, not to mention to make the, the mental shift. Because you become, I think, from the people I know, I had an interesting talk with Matthew Ingram, who writes now for TechCrunch. Yep. I think you really change as a person. This changes you. And this is really, you know, I think, key to Umer Haig's work and some of what I think interests me for sure about this is that this isn't just about you get a web tool and, oh, I'm on the web. It's about changing you as a person and how exactly. you are in the world. And that's hopefully the bigger disruption. Which is goes back to what, I'm, what I said before, where I don't think – the type of work I do or the type of, you know, what, what defines a digital native is it isn't based on, on age or technical skill set. It's their comfort level to being open and to expose themselves and be vulnerable and to see the, their contacts in the world as a strength to them and, and have that be reciprocal. Oh, you're right. So, yeah, Andrew's correcting me. Matthew's a gigo. French. You're right. right. Sorry. Sorry to get. And he used to be the Globe and Mail here in uh, in uh, Toronto. But we had an interesting conversation about how he changed as a person as he blogged and as he got more online and as his life changed and how he opened up. So, yeah, I I I have to say I find even in my dating life as I find my everybody's following my life. I'm now single and uh, about to start dating online. And I feel like I, because I feel like a digital native, I feel like I'm multiple ages. Yeah. Mm. You know? Yeah. I know. I, I know exactly what you mean because, you know, it's only been in the last 18 months or so that my, my, um, classmates in high school have really started taking Facebook seriously, which I find odd because, you know, it's, it's, just so normal to me but i guess you know people who graduated you know from mm-hmm. college in the early 90s they had better stuff to do for a long time and uh it just they weren't part of they weren't part of the facebook boom when it first started oh god look what it look. reminds me totally of 
you know, what's happening with like your high school friends, because we're all about the same age, is the exact same thing that happened with the net in the mid-90s with AOL. Like, I used to be over in BBSs and chat rooms, and then all my high school friends showed up on AOL, right? Exactly. So it's, it's a whole it's repeat. It's the same sort of thing that once something goes more mass, right? Right. Um, well, that's why fa- Facebook is the place where you lie to your friends, and Twitter is the place where you tell the truth to strangers. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> But it's, I mean, but it's also, this is, this is you know, part of the value of tumbling is to, is to prevent that sort of exponential explosion by herding it back towards conversation. There's, there's two sides to the problem. One problem is there's not enough conversation going on. You need to make more happen. And the other half is you need to steer it back to a topic that, make, that makes sense for a lot of people rather than just degenerating into, into noise as more people join in. And that's, those are both the skills that we're talking about here is like focusing the conversation and feeding it back in. Yeah. Yeah. So the closing that loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but do you think, Andy? Because it seems to me this way that as the medium changes, it it hastens sort of that impersonal shift. Like I think find social media to be a bit of a tipping point because the nature of how it works speeds up this sort of uh, uselessness of not including other people. <laughs> so it, it it's hard to be effective in the medium if you don't open more. I mean, you can stay sort of more superficial. I feel like, I feel like, yeah, we still have a very superficial level of celebrity, but for celebrity, I feel like it's shifted in, for those people in those mindset, they've still shifted a bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you use these tools for whatever your personal motives and interests are for, for a lot of people, it's, you know, self-promotion and marketing and the like. And just because of celebrity culture, that's often people's first experience with Twitter, you know, following the people that they're fans of. And, um, right. and you know, that's perfectly fine. But if all you're doing is following famous people on Twitter, you miss the fact that Twitter is designed as a conversation tool and not a publishing tool. Um, and and it's, you see that play out on, on so many different platforms where it was designed to do s- – conversations or trust building or whatever really well but then it gets co-opted by people who see that it has other potential that's ancillary and maybe effective in those areas but ends up causing people to miss the entire point i would say it's more a case that they can't see how to do anything else yet except to the degree to which the medium hits them over their head a little bit it's it's not just about consciously co-opting it they don't know any other way to be yet right yeah yeah the the famous people or or the twitter well, there's both famous people and there's people who have been trained to try to think that way, right? Whether you're famous right. or not. Like, hi, I'm going to act. Like, and you see people come to social media, try to build that um, yes. attitude to social media. Like, we've had a whole layer of I'm a celebrity, a social media celebrity. And it's sort of a weird um, bridge between the two realms where they know the tools. Some of them use the tools pretty well. They do how to talk about caring about you. But it's a lot, a lot about brand building and about uh, how great they are and um, not so much about as much about common problem. Which is one of the reasons why I'm so uncomfortable with conversations that have been happening lately about me suddenly be transitioning from being Internet famous to real world famous. I mean, I don't believe either of those. You know, I, 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 you know, at, at best, I'd like to think I'm respected among my peers. I'll, I, that's more than enough for me. Uh, but as you know, whether it's the media coverage I'm getting or anything else, people start seeing me in a different way. And I don't want that to change the relationship I have with the public. Um, because if, but if they, you keep if, behaving the way you always have, why it wouldn't change? I think what changes is if people start acting. Well, I, I, 
I, yeah, I, I think you're right to a certain extent because I don't feel my behavior has changed. But I, I, I'm amazed at the number of people that I retweet to. I then see them tweet, oh, my God, I can't believe A. a-, a. Carvin retweeted me. I need to tell my parents or whatever. It's, there's a fandom reaction that I'm seeing to some of my interactions. That You can't just, control their reaction. No, I, I can't. I you no, know, I agree. I can't control the reaction, but but it feels a little I, icky to you. If, I get it. Well, it's it's not that it feels icky. It's that I don't want them to them for them to feel like I'm trying to establish a stratified right. relationship with them. I just want them to talk to me like I'm me. But if you that's keep behaving that way, sorry, Debs, go ahead. Well, that's why I use the word icky. It doesn't feel authentic to you. It doesn't feel like you want to just you're you, right? You just want right. have a conversation and and. And there's something that goes on, you know, we could probably argue for hours whether it's human nature or, you know, current tools and technology that makes people sort of do this, celeb- you know, the world we live in with this, celeb- you know, click- 15 clicks of fame, right? You know, everyone wants to get their moment that everyone is a celebrity, kind of. It's weird, I think. Existentially, right. I think it's weird. <laughs> right. Whereas, I'm too you know, tired my, to use bigger words, but weird is yeah. what I've come up with. And, you know, for me, I just want to do the stuff that I care about simple as that and you know it, i get some attention for it that's great but i you know i don't want that attention to af- interfere with my goals right i, I actually disagree with floozy speaker saying as you have more and more followers you can't um have intimacy what i found at least when i'm doing uh you know a, con- a this sort of tumbling a room is i've done it with huge rooms you do the same thing andy's doing and if you can see, keep being authentic, you can't talk to each person. But if you continue to engage with people you don't know and kind of intentionally pick them in certain ways, and that's a whole other topic, um, you can still convey much more intimacy and like, hey, I am willing to talk to them because the people I'm going to keep engaging with, I'm going to keep doing this way and I'm going to keep letting you know I'm like this. But you can be overwhelmed by it because – Oh, sure. But, you know, so, especially if you attempt to answer everything. You can't. Right. Well, I, and right. I'm, not, I'm already not doing that. But my, my greatest fear is somehow my Twitter account getting publicized to the point where I suddenly find myself with hundreds of thousands of followers, especially right. people who are following me in a real cursory, shallow way, you know, which is why, you know, I, I, I look at uh, – you know, take the NPR politics Twitter account. It was on Twitter's suggested user list for a long time. It has about, I don't know, 1.7, 1 in, 1.8 million fans. I would rather have 1,800 followers than 1.8 uh, million followers on the NPR account because people who follow me are investing in me and have feel, feel like they want me to succeed in a very personal capacity. Whereas people follow some of the NPR accounts simply because they've heard of NPR and maybe Twitter suggested it. That's not a relationship that's going to be constructive. It may help us with page views, but it's not going to improve our journalism necessarily. You know, uh, Andy, this is Andrew Hazlett here. I, yeah. You know, one, one question I, that has been you know, bothering me is that, you know, all of this immense work that you're doing, all of this relationship building and journalism that you're doing, is it being kind of dissipated in this ephemeral cloud of Twitter? Uh, how, do, how do we make it stick? How do we record it? And not, not just for posterity, but just for, for next week. Right. Um, who's, you know, who's I describe, d- you know? Well, I mean, the question is who's going to curate the curator? I hear that all the time. And I, I don't know how one would staff that. I, I think a simple way to get it, get it going would be to find a cohort of 20, 30 people who are committed to rotating, you know, like doing, creating Storify pages, you know, daily summaries or, or having mm-hmm. a blog, you know, to create a, to create a Tumblr 
uh, summarizing, you know, A. a Carvin's greatest hits. I think that would be of immense value. I just don't have the bandwidth to do it myself, nor does anyone at NPR have the bandwidth to do it at this particular moment in time. Um, so, have, have you looked at ThinkUp? Have you looked at um, the, the tool that they're building there? No, I'm not familiar with them. Um, take a look at it. Because the, the, the goal of that is it's you run it on, on your own server and, and it downloads your conversations and tracks that for you in your own database so that you can then construct that stuff later. It's, it's, oh, interesting. Um, that, 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 that would be worth a look. Uh, yeah. Gina Trapani. Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. I just forgot the name. That's what Gina and Neil were doing at Expert Lab. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've, I've been meaning to check back in with her about that to see what might you be sure? interesting. Yeah, it's you know I've been working with uh, the News Trust project and their local uh, pilot in Baltimore, yep. and mm-hmm. uh, you know their model is built around um, not, you know not just print journalism but going into audio, video, blogs, and they're admirably inclusive of uh, independent sources. But there's a real divide there in trying to like capture and and curate um, you know, Twitter and uh, and um, you know, and some of the other sources that are out there, just comments on Facebook and Tumblr blogs, et cetera. And it's it's a real challenge to try to um, you know capture, evaluate, and present that. Right. Well, you know, one way some of this is getting preserved is just through the relationships I have with people on the on air and online in NPR's newsroom. Because the one thing we didn't really talk about is the role I have as somewhat of a an ad hoc producer or stringer for NPR's other journalists. So, uh, for example, one of our reporters is, has been in Tripoli for the last month, and you know, basically all the reporters there are kind of under house arrest. They can't leave the hotel without minders, and all the stuff that's fed to them is pretty much BS. And so if they want to do a story about Miss Rada, for example, which has been under siege for the last, what, five, six weeks, it's hard for them to do that in Tripoli. And so... Um, They'll Skype with me and saying, hey, we want to talk to people in such and such a place, and I work my networks to find the right people and then connect them through whatever appropriate mechanism they want to talk through. And next thing you know, it turns into a radio piece that airs on Morning Edition the next day. And so, um, you know, I think in some ways that's that's a huge change for us because – you know, for a long time I was seen as the quirky social media guy, whereas I've never mm-hmm. viewed myself as a social media guy. You know, I, you know, I have other ways I've always described myself, and I don't think many people knew that I, I had been a professional writer and a documentary maker for much of my career. So that, so I actually knew how to do some of this this stuff. But once they started seeing the stuff I was collecting from the Middle East, like we we have. Um, various discussion places internally to talk about our Middle East coverage and someone might post something saying uh, we're hearing reports that something happened in Yemen and uh, uh, then I'll write back and say oh yeah this is what we were talking about six hours ago when it happened here are the following people who are eyewitnesses and here's the video I found already and they'll just you can almost you can sometimes hear jaws drop via email because they're just not, you know, until that happened, they didn't realize that this stuff was out there and that people were talking. And mm-hmm. they certainly realize it now. And so there are a number of our reporters and producers I work with on a regular basis just to augment what they're doing. And you, you don't see that play out on Twitter because it's not intended to play out on Twitter. I might do the news gathering there on Facebook or on YouTube, but ultimately it's for, for the radio, for the web. Cool. So that, that's what captures all of this uh... – all of these insights. It's well, some of it, not not all of it. That's why I think it needs to be augmented with 
are complemented with some form of 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 metacuration of what I'm doing. Um, you know, people who are just really good at using Storify and similar tools who can just crank stuff out. Yeah. Storify is the only thing that I've seen so far, but yeah. We talked to Scott. Scott Rosenberg is sort of obsessed with this concept of sort of not just curating the curators, but the the concept of memory that we're you know and yes. and storytelling and and not losing that. Right. Um, on, that's a whole other area where we need better tools, right? And then was the what was the name of the digital the Internet Archives recent uh, conference we went to, Kev? What was that called? <laughs> Personal, uh, archiving. personal archiving, yeah. Per personal archiving, which talks a, a, a bit about this in, in, as it relates to our personal lives, but it's the same stuff. You know, right. The same issues, broader, but yeah. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's, well, there's the whole personal data ecosystem stuff. Right, um, yeah. And there's the quantified self people who are sort of coming at it from a slightly different angle, but it, it relates to that, where it, it's, it's saying, okay, I want my own set of stuff I've been talking about, um, and it reminds me of Jeremy Mikowski and his, his brain that he's been sort of gathering yeah. in his computer for the last 20 years. Um, and it's awesome, Jerry's brain. I love that brain. But, but that's, that's pretty cool, by the way, if you're a mind mapper. Yeah, I actually got partially got my start because of him. He, he wrote about me um, for Esther's the, – the, 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 you know, for, yeah, for release 1.0. For release 1.0 back in 1994 well, yeah. for my, the first blog I did. And, and Esther talked about me in a New York Times piece she wrote. And all of a sudden, yeah. you know, off I went. Yeah, there you go. Well, Jerry's a good friend of ours. so mm. He was yeah. our first. Well, we did his launch a show. He's the first guest on the first show. It's oh, a great. video that we did yeah. when we were on Twit. Yeah, I just, I just had lunch with him a couple weeks ago, too, which was great. So. Yeah, he's a tumble, he's a big tumbler for sure. He is an awesome tumbler, yeah. I will say, like, I like his brain asynchronously, but um, in person, it's a little tough when, like, you're stopping every second to go record something. Yeah, that's true. But, like, yeah, in terms of something that would be adapted for more people's use, like, I would like to see it developed so it'd be easier for all of your social feeds to just go in there. So would he, but, but, but you know, the company didn't get big enough to, to include all the features he wants. But it, it is an asynchronous tool. It's not a... You know, it's an archive for your stuff, right? That's what it's supposed to be, I think. That's the way it's used now. Yes, so, Andy, sorry to keep you, but we're really grateful you gave us so much time. It's sure, my pleasure. It's been fun. Yeah, Great. If you Thanks a lot, Andy. Andy. And if you, you have so feedback for us, we're happy to hear it, our ideas. Yeah, sure. I'll because we also uh, are just good at not knowing we don't know that much. Right. Well, it's hard to tell in real time sometimes, so I'm definitely going to go back and listen to the podcast afterwards and see how it plays out. And so That'd be I'll, great. I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys know after that. Thanks yeah, very much. Please do. Yeah. Thanks. Sure. And thanks to everybody who's been here tonight. We really appreciate it.